the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be back with you this Thursday evening. Don't forget ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com to check out all of what we're doing. And most importantly, sign up for the daily email, my wink, what you need to know, which goes to your email boxes at 5 a.m. Pacific time, 5 a.m. Pacific time, 8 a.m. East Coast time. Hey, um, we got a couple things to talk about, and the overlay here is what you need to know, which we, we, we have talked about this for a long time. The overlay here is that the American people are being disserved by the fake news media. And what I mean by that is we're just having a failure to cover what's actually happening in our lives, and therefore we're not understanding what's going on. We're missing it. And because we're missing it, we think some things are the problem and we think other things are the problem and we're missing the problems. So let me give you a couple of examples. Did you know that the time that they started tearing down Christopher Columbus statues, which did not start last month in Baltimore, although it did happen in other cities, it did happen. It started in the 1920s. And when that was anti-Catholic KKK, the KKK equally, well, I don't know if equally, they hated Catholics, they hated African-Americans, they hated Jews. KKK started and dominated by Democrats for many, many decades. Democrats served in the U.S. Senate who had been members of the KKK. But there you have it. And here and, and here's what we know. If you're a Catholic, you know and recognize that anti-Catholic bigotry is acceptable in this country. Now, we don't spend a lot of time, I'm Catholic, of course, we don't spend a lot of time talking about it and, and, and worrying too much about it. We just go about our lives. But think about what you've seen. In the last month, we had Columbus statues torn down. In the last month, we had St. Junipero Serra statues torn down in California. You also had, about six months ago, Senator Feinstein of California look a Catholic nominee in the eye and say, the dogma runs strong in you, meaning that your Catholic faith is something that's motivating for you. And her attack, Diane Feinstein's, was denounced by the head of the president of Notre Dame, Father Jenkins, the head of the Anti-Defamation League, the head of Princeton University, the Harvard Law Review. Others denounced it, but you know who didn't denounce it? Catholics like Dick Durbin, Catholics like Joe Biden, other senators like Cory Booker and Chuck Schumer. They all said it was fine. They all said it was fine. And here's the point. Here's what I would say is, what is the, what is the reality of living in a country where we're not seeing that? We're not seeing coverage of that. So that's an example. I'm not saying it should be the only story. It's not the only thing you'd see out there. But I'm saying it's one. Here's another example. Right now in this country, did you know? I didn't know this. Portland, Oregon has had 55, 56 straight days of, of protests that turn into riots. I didn't know it was that long. Did you know it was that long? Until the president talked about it the other day, it wasn't something I knew about. Why? Because the media wasn't showing us the pictures. Because the media knows it's a disaster for one of the two parties. And it's not the Republican Party. It's a disaster for the Democrats because those cities are run by Democrats. So Portland has been burning and we don't even know. 
The fact is that we are we are being conditioned by the media in a direction and we're missing what's happening. And the fake news is failing all of us. Now, let me tell you what the fake news is failing us and setting us up for disaster. Are you ready? This is disaster. We talked about it earlier in the week, but the, and, and the, the fake news is now setting us up for a disaster in this country when schools try to reopen in six weeks. Over and over now, the media is covering the outbreak of the virus and saying how difficult it could be, might be, will be, whatever. And we have teachers unions in Los Angeles. They've said they will not show up to work unless there's Medicare for all and a whole other list of demands. Fairfax, Virginia, the teachers union rolled back the recommendation that there be in-school teaching. So we have schools. And my point here is the media is not covering what is a tsunami of social upheaval. The social upheaval that will occur in five and six and seven and eight weeks when the nation doesn't go back to school and when lots of people are worried about their kids in ways they haven't been in the past. Because even if you had to have distance learning the last two months of the school year, most people in America thought, well, it's temporary. And now we're faced with a permanent change in how kids, you're seeing people pull their kids out of school. Other people are mad about it. You're seeing teachers upset about it. My point here is while we have the hysterical news media covering other subjects, we're missing what is actually in front of us. And as I've said before, it doesn't matter if the reason that you think you, 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 that you can't go back to school is wrong. And I tend to think they are. I tend to think that we ought to be able to figure out how to go back to school, do so, some social distancing, figure out how to manage things. But the idea of shutting down all the schools again for the school year and for the first six months going to last a whole year. It's a disaster. And nobody's covering it. Instead, they're covering all sorts of conversations. They're covering all sorts of things. They want to talk about Trump this, Trump that. The simple fact of life is we are coming towards an engineered crisis. And it's been stoked by the fake news that is refusing to address the issue. If I told you that you had a multi-billion dollar school district, multi-billion dollar schools, let's say that, they're going to get another $100 billion out of one of these stimulus bills, and the schools can't figure out how to make this work, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. It's nonsensical. It's, it's not, I know that school teachers, and I tell you this, I say this over and over again, the late Phyllis Schlafly taught me this. School teachers deserve our thanks. School teachers deserve credit. School teachers do, they are they doing some of the heaviest lifting. But there's school teachers unions and the school administrators and the bureaucracies that have built up and the programs that have been done, the, 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 the social justice programming that's happened. That's a discredit. And those are, that is what's being used against we the people right now. And I, I just, I'm, I'm raising this again and again. I did an interview today. I, I, you may have seen my Breitbart.com column yesterday. I did an interview today with a new, uh, an NBC reporter, someone I've known for years, and she called and she wanted to talk about the presence, uh, growing strength in terms of the crime and addressing the urban cities. And I said, that's all good. I think he had to. I think the president could only allow the lawlessness to continue for a certain amount of time. Then he had to say what he said, which is, if you can't get your cities under control, we will. And he's doing it. And I think most Americans appreciate that and are directionally, they think, yeah, you can't let them keep burning our cities. But I said to her at the end of the discussion, 
That's not the issue that's going to be first on our minds in just five weeks. The issue that's going to be first on our minds is the impact on the economy, the impact on the family, the impact on our students, the impact on our way of life. We're coming into what is an extraordinarily challenging moment, set of moments. And, and I, I'm not seeing coverage of it yet. Maybe they'll jump on it soon. Maybe. Maybe they will. But again, I can tell you, it's going to pit a different reporter. Maybe I won't tell him. I'll cover his name for uh, his identity. Different reporter for a major uh, national uh, 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 periodical, no, a mag, uh, um, newspaper online, too, um, said to me, he's divorced. And he said his wife, <coughs> pardon me, wanted to put their child into a public, a private school. And he said, I don't want to, I don't want her to go into a private school. And the, his ex-wife said, well, we have till Friday. If we tell them we're going to in, they, then, then she can go to school. And, and where, where they live, there's no in-person school. And, and again, my point here is public versus private, rich versus poor, living in the right place or wrong place, not having to work or working from home, all these kinds of things. You want to see upset people? You watch what happens in five weeks. And here's my point. The billions and what you need to know, the billions and billions of dollars we spend on education I am very, I want to be clear. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying they need to wrap their hands around it and get it done. There cannot be excuses. It has to be done and it has to get to, uh, it has to get uh, 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 done in whatever ways they can. And, and, and it can't be only distance. And let me say the last thing about that. The distance learning, it's not sufficient. It's not good. It's really not. Nobody thinks it is. It, you can't take a nine-year-old and put him in front of a TV, uh, in front of a screen for three, four, five, six hours. The teachers aren't good at it. I'm not complaining that no one should be good at that. It's hard to do. But I'm just telling you right now, what's coming down the pike is an unbelievable set of challenges, and we're not even hearing about it. You're hearing about it from me twice, twice this week. But you're not hearing about it from the powers that be and from the media, which is brainwashing us to think about the things that we shouldn't be thinking about and things that they want us to talk about. The NBA is going to open and we're going to have 17 hours and 5,000 columns on the fact that Black Lives Matter is written on the NBA court in their little bubble in Florida where they're playing and making millions of dollars. Give me a break. Give me a break. You're fiddling while Rome burns and it's going to get hot in the next five weeks. All right, that's what you need to know. Hey, we're going to come back from the break. We'll talk with Julie Kelly, our old friend. We'll get an update on her book on the Never Trumpers. It's called Disloyal Opposition. If you don't have it, you need to get a copy of it. And a new guest, Amy Swear. Oh, sorry, Amy Swear. I realize she's been on before. She's going to break down the Little Sisters of the Poor case, which the Supreme Court handled this year. Give us a sense of what that all means so that we're on top of that. So we'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our old friend Julie Kelly's back with us to get an update on her book. Julie Kelly, of course, now she's an author. She has to put that. She's not an author of a book, but she's been a senior contributor over at American Greatness for a long time. She's also written at The Federalist, National Review, The Hill, Wall Street Journal. Um, she's worked in politics and mostly to her her highest uh, achievement is she's also been a stay-at-home mom. She has two great kids and a husband. She's raising all three of them right. So her, her book is, of course, Disloyal Opposition, How the Never-Trump Right 
website tried and failed to take down the president. Came out just a few weeks ago. So welcome back, Julie Kelly. But let me ask you this. First of all, your book's out now. It's being published. It names names. You're fearless. You're, you're, you di- just did it. But now you've picked up your opposition, right? I noticed on Twitter they came after you. They unfollowed you, blocked you or whatever. What's been the worst part of that stuff? It's always nasty and you don't mind it. you got enough Irish in you. But, I mean, what's the worst part of that been? First of all, I want to say one of the names I name in my book is you in the acknowledgments because you've been so supportive of my work and having me on your show. And so I wanted to give you credit for that and uh, just tell you how much I appreciate it. So we'll start You're very there. kind. Thank you. Okay, good. Um, but, good. yes, you know, you judge people by who your enemies are, and I'm completely <laughs> fine with having this group of traitors, grifters, uh, washed-up <laughs> losers on my enemy list because I have a great list of people who are on my site, like you, for example. So, um, no, I don't shy away from it, and you have to walk right into it. Otherwise, they win. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is interesting to see. It's funny, the timing, though, because at the same time you put this book out, I thought, well, it could be maybe it's bad timing, right? We're in the middle of this uh, in this Wuhan virus, the shutdown and all. On the other hand, that Lincoln project, which has a number of your uh, stars in it, has been sort of exposed as being, you know, classic sort of uh, establishment political move. They raise millions and pay each other the millions. I mean, walk us through that sort of uh, that that uh, scam that they always run and they did in this case some of your key people were sort of affiliated with that that's right the timing was pretty good because i was nervous um you know when the book came out the president was really on the ropes understandably so after what he's been through just this year alone not to mention the past three and a half years so the timing was fortuitous and this lincoln project just follows the same shtick that i outline in my book which is um you know kind of these unknown alleged Republicans and conservatives or McCain-Bush holdovers who are have a grudge that Trump won against their objections. And so right. they go out and give this fake impression that there are Republicans and conservatives opposed to the president, that there are a lot of people out there just like them. And, but their funding mostly comes from the left, from Democrats. And that's certainly the case with the Lincoln Project. It's certainly the case with the nonprofits that I cover in my book. And most of any Never Trump group that you read about or hear about uh, is funded from the left, not the right. It's uh, We're talking with Julie Kelly, and again, her book is called Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. What about uh, anybody surprise you with uh, that maybe you thought was going to be against you and said you're right on this? I, I guess I, I guess what I mean is, um, is the is the never Trumper, is it shrinking? Is it getting down to like the last of the holdouts? You know that there's and, and people, some people that were I, I can think of a couple of uh, journalists who were sort of rabidly anti-Trump for a long time time and have sort of gone quiet. I think they just realized it was not. Has, are you seeing it? Are we down to the last of the holdouts? Um, I think we might be. But um, what's interesting, Ed, is to see Democrats uh, go after the never Trumpers. So there are plenty of Democrats who don't want these people on their side or affiliated with them. I don't know if you saw that ambush of Rick Wilson last week. Stephen Colbert has, I guess, some cartoonish like talk show or interview show. So they had Rick Wilson on. He thought it would be a friendly interview, but they completely just creamed the guy because they reminded their viewers that all these Lincoln Project people are 
a lot of them are affiliated with George W. Bush. You know, they ran up deficits and they were warmongers and all of the things that the left and, and Democrats have said about um, uh, about these people for years. And so he was pretty taken aback. But you're seeing a little bit more of that, that uh, the Democrats really don't want to be tied with these people either. So will they end up in political no man's land where they belong? I certainly hope so. Yeah. It, well, and and the uh, what about the what about the um, you know before the great pause is what I call the Wuhan virus and what it did to our economy. Uh, you know the 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 economy was so strong and the president was so strong. Nobody was listening to the Never Trumpers. I mean, they were sort of almost they became irrelevant because they were so clearly they they were arguing for failure and there wasn't any. Now, of course, they're sort of reveling in people dying from a disease and and uh, economies being closed down and and cities burning. But it you know you have to say it's kind of as you said it, it's had an effect, right? I mean, it has it's it's a it's made it um, difficult for the president and and a challenge and all. And uh, you know, uh, but some of your people I don't know if, uh, are going to go to the Democrat convention, right? Some of the Never Trumpers will be even invited there. I think, right? Well, we just heard this week that John Kasich, another sore loser like Mitt Romney, is going to, I believe he's going to speak at the convention in support of Joe Biden. Now, that will be interesting because you're already seeing pushback from that. Um, But some of these people are John Kasich, uh, are affiliates of John Kasich. So John Weaver, associated with the Lincoln Project, is a longtime loyalist to John Kasich. So they're all kind of in this sore losers club, Um, you know, people who can't really win important elections. And so this is how they get money, number one, how they get media coverage, number two, and how they get their hits on MSNBC and columns in the Washington Post. So, and look, I'm all about making money and getting attention for yourself. That's fine. But once you're exposed for who you are, either, you know, you kind of have to own up to it. Yeah. We're talking with Julie Kelly again, and her book is Disloyal Opposition. You can get it anywhere uh, books are sold. What's your read on uh, the politics? I know you've, you, you, you know, you're looking and you watch the politics of the coming election in November. And, you know, in the cities, you've had, you know, Black Lives Matter and Antifa rioting and, and defund the police. But you do have, and I, you, I've seen you tweet about it, you have the challenge of both the handling and mishandling the coronavirus, depending on where you are and what you've seen. And, you know, think about this. I know you feel it, too. It's going to be a disaster in the fall when we go back to school and half the schools can't figure out how to go back to school. Whether it's accurate or not doesn't matter. It's just making parents crazy. So what's the politics of this for the president? When you're in the big seat, it, it you, you tend to be the one that has to take the heat, right? I mean, it's a tough moment, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, I definitely have had my disagreements with the president and uh, his team, his task force, how they handled coronavirus, the economic lockdown, the models that they relied on. Um, I think there are plenty of criticism there. Um, but I think he's trying to regroup. Uh, I think that he's trying to figure out a way to get the economy going again permanently to get schools reopened. I think Betsy DeVos is doing a good job against huge pressure to get these schools open. Um, And so we need to go back to some sense of normalcy. We need to hear more from the president about that. Because as you know, Ed, the Democrats are going to use this coronavirus, coronavirus hysteria 
for a number of political purposes. Number The first of which is to keep Joe Biden in his basement um, and away from yeah. voters and away from the press, which we saw him do again today. He gave this nonsensical speech. He could barely you know, pronounce words. And then he walks away from the podium, not taking any questions. And then the second objective is for this mail-in all absentee ballot election in November. So they're going to continue to fuel this hysteria. And uh, the president and his backers, to the extent they're already in Washington, who are, have the guts to speak out, um, they need to have his back and defend him. It, um, yes, and, and I, you know, um, it is... Um I guess I guess it's kind of classic Trump, though, right? He he only likes to be in it when it's dramatic and exciting and all. But it's it's some challenge. All right, Julie Kelly, thank you as always. Uh, again, Julie Kelly's book is called "Disloyal Opposition: How the Never Trump Right Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President." Available wherever you get books. I think it's in, is it Encounter Books? Is that right? It's kind of it's big time. It's, it's there. Yeah, encounter, yeah, Encounter Books. So and then at Julie underscore Kelly. What is it, 45? What's on Twitter? Tell me again on Twitter. And then Parlor. I get so your happy. Favorite, Go. Your favorite Twitter. Yeah, my favorite. Uh, Julia underscore yeah. Kelly, too. Just two. <laughs> okay. On Twitter. And then and then on Parlor, though. What is it on Parlor? It's so exciting. Go ahead. You'll be so happy. Just at Julie Kelly. So great. It's just so great. It's such progress. It's progress. All right. Such a beautiful name. It doesn't need to be uh, underlined and number two. But anyway. All right, Julie, congratulations on the book. Keep on trucking. I know it's hard slog out there, but it's wonderful you're out doing this. And we appreciate it as always. Thanks so much for all your support. I appreciate it. Okay. We'll talk again soon. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back, Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. You know, this story, and I, there was a column that I read, and I, and I, I flagged it, and I said, I'm going to go back uh, and ask uh, one of the authors, Amy Swearer, who is over at, she's a senior, senior legal policy analyst at the Ed Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage Foundation. Of course, everybody knows uh, Ed Meese, amazing, uh, amazing leader, amazing presence, and his Meese Center is really extraordinary. So, uh, well, first of all, Amy, welcome back to the program. How are you today? Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Good. So I wanted you to walk us through this story and kind of pretend we don't know enough because it happened a few weeks ago. The Supreme Court made this decision, but the decision has to do with the Little Sisters of the Poor who were pushing back. Uh, they won finally in the U.S. Supreme Court. But it seems to me these issues around religious liberty are just more important than people realize. So walk us through this case, what happened and what it means, if you will, please. Sure. So this is a case that centers around the Little Sisters of the Poor. Uh, and as you sort of uh, hinted at there, this is a religious organization, a trend by an order of Catholic nuns, and they're dedicated um, in in a number of ways to serving the sick and the infirm and the elderly. Um, and they've spent now uh, almost a decade locked in a battle uh, to protect their own religious liberty. So the, the sort of broad overview of, of what happened in the Supreme Court uh, this last month is that the Supreme Court handed them a victory and said that the Trump administration had the authority to exempt the Little Sisters of the Poor uh, and, of course, other similar organizations like them from a mandate that would have required them to provide contraceptive coverage uh, to their employees that uh, they thought was morally inappropriate. There have been a lot of concerns about um, some of these specific contraceptives and whether they cause abortions. Um, 
Um, and of course, there are with Catholics some religious concerns with that generally. So they they overall earned a victory in the Supreme Court uh, these past couple of weeks. But unfortunately, uh, you know, to sort of add to the story here, their fight is probably not over yet. We will unfortunately probably see them back before the Supreme Court in the future. Why are they back again? Because when it goes down, there's likelihood that to the lower courts, there's likely to be adverse uh, decisions. Is that why? Right. Um, so basically what the Supreme Court did here um, is they, they gave them a, a, a narrow victory that said um, for certain reasons, basically, the, the lower court was wrong, that these exemptions uh, could be provided by the Trump administration. Um, but there were some other underlying issues that the Supreme Court didn't get to um, sort of what we consider on the merits of the regulations. These were sort of procedural concerns. Um, but the fear is that when it goes back to the lower courts, the states that have been suing the Little Sisters are just going to go uh, and, and take some of these underlying issues, sue them again, and start the process over. And so they're going to end up back in front of the Supreme Court sort of on the issues that the court didn't decide this time. Hmm. We're talking with Amy Swearer, and Amy is a senior legal policy analyst over at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage Foundation. You can follow her at, at Amy Swearer on Twitter. And the piece I'm referring to, it's a good summary piece. It kind of walks through, I guess it's a commentary piece. It's over on the Daily Signal. I'll put it up on social media. Um, it's interesting. Joe Biden said recently when he gets in, he'll make sure the little sisters of the poor don't win this fight. I guess, is there is there a way that, uh, I, is, there, is there part of this that's discretionary? Is that the point? Point that the next uh, the next president or administration could interpret something a certain way is that what he means or just is he just sort of pandering yeah. to the uh, to the, it was not not real no so so this is actually a very real concern here um, so to understand this we have to backtrack a little bit we have to go all the way back um, to 2011 when Congress passed the Affordable Care Act um, so that believe it or not did not have this uh, this mandate for employers to provide this, this controversial contraceptive coverage that was actually an agency created rule so basically the uh, the FDA sort of filled oh. in uh, with this mandate and so what happened was uh, there was a, a long fight over the exceptions to that mandate. Um, that we can kind of brush over. But what happened was when the, the Trump administration came in, they expanded the exceptions. They listened to the little sisters of the poor and said, look, we're not we're not going to force you to go against your consciences and your religious liberty here. So they expanded that exemption. So remember, it was an agency created rule. Um, and so that's sort of what they were fighting about now. And the fear is that if you have a different administration come in, um, an administration that doesn't quite care about religious liberty, they can revoke those exemptions. They can go back to the original rule, um, and then they're going to have to fight that out all over with a new administration trying to force the Little Sisters of the Poor and other religious organizations to provide these objectionable contraceptives. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it, it feels like it feels like it's uh, shouldn't be an issue, right? That even uh, uh, Joe Biden likes to talk about how he's Catholic and all, and that he's you know he's he's got friends and all. Anyway, but it's uh, it's certainly a real thing. Um, what do you think this uh, of the Supreme Court's term? I mean, I know you're again you're a, a legal analyst. Uh, there's a whole bunch of decisions in there, but it, it's kind of an uneven one, right? I mean, between the one Gorsuch decision on the on uh, Title Seven, I guess I think it is. I mean, it, it's kind of a a funny term, wasn't it? Yeah, it has been a funny term. I, I think on the issue of religious liberty in particular, there were a couple of cases for religious liberty, um, and, and that turned out really, really well 
uh, for the protection of religious liberty. Um, but there are a lot of other questionable things that, that came out, um, you know, things like in, in terms of Trump's tax returns cases, um, you know, certainly um, some of the, the more controversial ones uh, about um, immigration um, and, and things of that nature. Uh, and, and then, of course, you also had, um, I, I know a lot of people who are concerned about the Second Amendment, uh, you know, thought we were going to get a Second Amendment case for the first time in a decade. Yeah. Uh, and that sort of got dismissed and the court didn't take up any Second Amendment cases. Um, so it has just been kind of, you know, again, uh, I think a mm-hmm. big win for religious liberty, um, but sort of questionable back and forth on a lot of other issues. Uh, again, we're talking with Amy Swear, and we're, they were started out. We're talking about the Little Sisters of the Poor. Um, so, are the Little Sisters? I, I want to. Sorry, I'm looking at my notes now. Again, uh, back at my notes. Um, and uh, are the Little Sisters? They they go down to lower court. Are they? Um, are they? Do they know the? Are they, is there any way this is over for them anytime soon, or is this just going to keep going back and forth? No, and and again, this is something that actually, in the opinion, um, some of the justices brought this up, that because the Supreme Court didn't decide some of these bigger underlying issues, um, they decided it sort of Mm -hmm. on on limited technical grounds, um, that it's almost certain that what's going to happen is this is going to go back to the lower courts in the states of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, who, if you recall, it's the states who are suing, not anybody who's affiliated with the Little Sisters of the Poor who are saying, you know, we want access that we don't otherwise have. These are states suing um, on behalf of plaintiffs who who don't really exist, um, that it's going to go back and they're going to start this whole process over by suing uh, to stop this, again, on those other grounds that haven't been resolved. Um, And so that's why some of the justices actually said, look, we should just save everybody this big legal battle and decide these issues now, because it seems very, very clear that when we get to them, we should be ruling for the little sisters of of the poor, that they have a, you know, a, a First Amendment religious liberty interest that we need to protect. Um, but un- unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, and so I, I think that's a pretty good premonition of what's going to happen, uh, is that this is going to get played out sort of a, a, you know, different day, same story type of thing, um, where it's just slightly different uh, arguments that they're going to have to rehash. I know this has been said a lot, and I, but, but I, I mean, this is not a new thing I'm saying, but it does feel like it's worse and worse. It, the process is the punishment. You know, I mean, the process of going through asserting your rights in this case, it's good that they're the little sisters of the poor because they just know what it's like to keep slogging and do the work and not worry. You know, the old Mother Teresa line is uh, we're called to be faithful, not successful, because, it, you know, this whole process is kind of uh, it, it, it's not it, it's almost more unfair that it drags on. And yet here we are. I mean, that's that's, I guess, life in, in modern America. Yeah, that, that is, unfortunately, um, you know, one of one of the downsides of having these sort of agency promulgated rules um, is that, you know, you, you sort of have these lower courts that go back and forth with it. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, you, you do you have organizations like the Little Sisters of the Poor who have to continually reassert their rights because states, um, again, in this case, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, are just continually trying to bash them down where it's just this constant fight. And until the Supreme Court actually clearly on the issues of religious freedom, not not procedural grounds, not technical grounds, but on the core issues, says they have a religious liberty right. You cannot force them to violate their consciences like this. Uh, You know, unfortunately, this is just going to keep coming up. 
Well, it's good. Thank you for uh, what you're writing on it and for coming on. Amy Swear over at the Mies Center at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, it's an important issue. I'm glad to sort of take a break and walk through it. So thank you very much, Amy. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Harvey Mansfield is one conservative professor at Harvard University, and he recently wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal that is worth bringing to your attention, especially if you have a college student in your family. He points out that at colleges today, course choice is in and requirements are out. Only the military academies, certain great books colleges, and some engineering schools tell students what they must study and what courses they must take. Most colleges offer a tremendous array of choices, and most of the choices are bad or useless. The bad and useless choices are more attractive because they're easy. Take sociology, for example. If you remember the TV sitcom with Archie Bunker, you may remember that Archie used to call his son-in-law Meathead. The son-in-law was a graduate student in sociology, a department where students learn a lot of jargon and wishful thinking. Another college department that is pretty much a waste of time is gender studies or women's studies, a very politicized department that misleads students about life. Gender studies taint the whole university with its fantasies about sex and gender. I always advise students to avoid taking women's studies courses because they're not women's studies at all. They are feminist studies and often lesbian studies. For example, it is dogma in most women's studies departments that students must accept the dogma that differences between males and females are not human nature but are a social construct brought about by our stereotyped upbringing. That means such things as mothers giving dolls to girls and trucks to boys. Professor Mansfield said that the universities consider all departments equal and all courses equal, and therefore no requirements can be justified as fundamental or more important. It's no wonder, then, that students make poor choices, select easy courses that do little or nothing for a good education or a job after graduation. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. If you're busy taking notes, you can stop now, because these commentaries in written form and spoken audio are archived on the website phyllisschlafly.com, many recorded by Mrs. Schlafly herself. If you're doing research or missed a day, just go to phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and re-listening to the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, ProAmericaReport.com. You can get every one of these great interviews that I'm doing available there. Please go and check them out. Uh, great to be here. Now, let me get some emails. I got some emails from people. Here was an email yesterday evening. It was actually a text from one of our listeners. He listens in Orange County. I believe he goes to the TheAnswerSanDiego.com and listens online. But he sent me this story, ran in the New York Times and everywhere else. Turns out, you're going to love this, the Chinese made one of the very popular gift items. Gifts in the last while 
has been an awesome uh, drone. I guess it's a really cool drone with a camera on it, and it's been sold. Tons of of of, of um, tons of uh, of of uh, product moved. Tons of these drones sold. It turns out, this is stunning to believe, isn't it? That cybersecurity researchers dug into it, and the drone made in China has security problems and is, you know, probably uh, collecting large amounts of personal information that could be exploited. So at this point, is there any doubt? Is there any doubt? We got the Chinese communists. They're doing a spy ring out of the Houston consulate, probably everywhere else. They got TikTok, which they're using to, to mine data on Americans. And now they have a drone, one of the most popular drones. So the answer it was Jason, uh, who lives up near Los Angeles in Orange County, I think. Jason sent that to me. We don't need more evidence, right? We're in the middle of what is completely, clearly a 100% Cold War, the second Cold War. And, you know, we just have to get over it. All right, here's another, um, here's another thing I want to bring up to you, how um, readily we are being lied to. Uh, and again, earlier in the show, I talked to how powerful the media is and what they're doing, the fake news. Here's a story in the New York Times, a very powerful story about two brothers and sisters, two people, a brother and a sister who died at 20 years old and 22 years old. And you read the story, and you're like, oh, my gosh, what a sad thing. In Florida, they, one guy, the brother got it. He died. A few weeks later, the sister got it. She died. Unbelievable. It's devastating. And then you go read the story, and the story it takes you about 20 paragraphs to get to the paragraph. And first, they show a picture, and then they tell you the facts. So the pictures of the two of them is they're massively obese. Now, that's not, I, I, I don't mean to be mean, I mean to be descriptive about what happens. They're massively obese, and also they had, um, at least one of them, the, the sister, had chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, and they both, I think, may have had um, asthma, and so my point here is, when you write a story about how potent um, the issue, the um, uh, the uh, coronavirus is and the Wuhan virus, you you know you have to be careful about the fatalities because the fatalities, um, it you know if, if you have those disorders and you get a bad flu, you'll also die from that. Now I'm not saying that the Wuhan virus is the flu. I'm saying be careful how you're being spun by the media on these issues because they are definitely spinning us dramatically. And uh, you know again. Uh, my wife and I talk about this frequently. There's other aspects, though, of the Wuhan virus. And I, I read an article on this subject, too. The Wuhan virus also, it doesn't always kill people, but it can have lasting impacts. It's not a minor disease, right? Some people end up with diminished lung capacity, even some heart disease and, and uh, um, heart failure afterwards. They may live, but they're dramatically impacted. So we need to be careful. But man alive, the New York Times is out to spin us. And uh, it's amazing. So thank you for uh, one of the people that sent me an inquiry on the statistics behind the uh, Wuhan stuff. Uh, there you have it. Okay, I want to finish today by highlighting something. I want to be careful how I do it because I don't want to be too dramatic about it. But I just want to tell you that I, I can't be more disappointed. I did not watch it tonight because I was so frustrated by it. Um, and that is this. Um, today, the um, the um, uh, the um, Nationals, the Washington Nationals, kicked off their first season since they won the World Series. Extraordinary victory, some wonderful players, and they won last year. And they're having their opening day, I think I've told you, against the New York Yankees. They had it earlier tonight. And it's a big deal. And they opened up, and they threw out the, the first pitch is being thrown out by not the President of the United States, not a U.S. Senator, not the Congresswoman who represents D.C. You know, there's a uh, Eleanor Norton, uh, Holt, uh, um, Holmes Norton, or uh, I think that's her name. None of those people. It's going to be Dr. Fauci. 
And Dr. Fauci is going to be out there and he's going to throw out the first pitch. Now, here's my point on this. I don't hold any grudge against Dr. Fauci. I mean, I think he's been wrong a lot. He's also been right a lot. I know, I'm not saying he's wrong all the time, but he's he's been pr- trotted out by the liberal media and the fake news media as the definitive commentator on everything. And, you know, he wasn't elected to anything. In fact, more troubling than anything to me is the way the media is trying to pit him against everybody else, uh, including the president. But but the biggest uh, a problem I have is what kind of mindset would you have to have to think that it's a good idea to throw out the first pitch? Last week, he did the cover story of InStyle magazine. There was a famous picture of him now by his pool with sunglasses on. And I just thought to myself, doesn't look like a, a public servant doesn't look like a career physician serving. I, I'm not judge. I don't know his heart. I don't know. I can't read his mind, but it just says to me really poor judgment. And it reminds me of this. The, 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 the biggest uh, obstacle to uh, folks, I think, p- understanding what role they play is actually not the cancel culture, although that's something else we talk about a lot, but the celebrity culture. Why is it that people don't sort of understand how they fit into these things? And I guess it's because when you're close to it, you have a blind spot. So somebody like him, maybe he he, he grew up in New York, I think. He grew up in New York, and he, I think I remember he was a, I don't know, Brooklyn Dodgers fan or something. But I do think I remember reading that he was a Nats fan since the, the Nats came here, uh, came uh, to his uh, home city where he lives. Um, and so, but my point is, well, how is that good? How is it good for him to do that? And and what is it that he thinks about to think that's a good idea? It just seems really off to me, really, really off base. And I wish he hadn't done it. And, I, and it makes me not want to watch. And my answer to you is I would not tune in. I would, If I were you, I would not have tuned in. Some people probably did. But I, I did not tune in, and I won't turn, tune into that kind of stuff. I'm, 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 I told you, I'm tuning out. I'm trying to find more ways to tune out, turn it off, uh, and, uh, and cut, cut the cord from that stuff. So I hope you will, too. All right, that's enough for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks you to, thank you to Noah, our fearless technical director, for everything he does. Joanna, for helping book our guests. And don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com, sign up for our email, and be uh, on, on top of things. And go to the Answers San Diego dot com for the podcast. Have a great night, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow.